I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of The Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from William Byrd's Earl of Salisbury's Pavan, which is from a book of music for the virginals called Parthenia. And this is the second in a series of podcasts about that book, with performances of music from it by keyboardist Louise Hung. These podcasts and the recordings of Louise's performances are supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, York University, the Spam in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and individual donors. As the chief councillor in the last years of Queen Elizabeth I's reign and the first years of James I's, Robert Cecil, the Earl of Salisbury, was at the centre of a web of political patronage, artistic patronage, and a web of spies that seems to have included musicians. I spoke to Louise about his patronage of the arts, especially the art of music, his musical instrument collection, and his collection of musicians. At the end of our chat, you'll hear Louise play William Byrd's Pavana, Earl of Salisbury, and Gallardo Secundo. Now, Louise, you're playing two pieces from Parthenia in this set. Uh, number six in the book, uh, which is titled Pavana, the Earl of Salisbury, and is by William Byrd. And number eight, which is labeled uh, Galliardo Secundo, and where the composer's name should be, it says Mistress Mary Brownlow. Now, Mistress Mary Brownlow was the dedicatee of the last Galliard you played for us, and it seems extremely unlikely that she's uh, the composer of this, given that she's probably Bird's student. Um, so, what do you think, uh, Mistress Mary Brownlow, being in the composer's position on this page means um for a few musicologists they just assume it's a misprint though if you see some of the listings of recordings that have been done of parthenia before they don't list uh, mary brownlow as a composer but that maybe it was supposed to be in the title but in most likelihood it was just a misprint so it says galliardo secundo uh, so it might be the second Galliard to Miss Mary Brownlow, but it might be the second Galliard for the Earl of Salisbury. Yes. Also, just the positioning in the book, too. It'd be a little odd to put the second Galliard split by other pieces in between. So, from, of the Mary, uh, Miss Mary Brownlow Galliardo mm-hmm. from before. Also, if you look at the Galliardo that comes before and then the Pavana that comes before, they're both uh, in A minor as is that second Galliardo. So mm-hmm. it ends up forming basically a little suite, or at mm-hmm. least you get the choice of different A minors to pair with the A minor Pavan. The, um, yeah, the the um, Mary Brownlow's we heard last time was is in C major. Yes, so so it having, is in C major. Yeah, anyway, yes. uh, re- tell, us, re- tell us what a Pavan is. You told us what a Galliard was last time. You can remind us of that too. Tell us what a Pavan is. Um, a Pavan is a very slow, stately processional dance. It's a entrance dance, uh, Spanish in origin. And a good way to, I guess, link it to something that people probably would know now is the bride and groom and the wedding party walking down the center of the church 
with mm-hmm. it, uh, during um, a, a marriage ceremony. So it's sort of a stylized and decorated wedding march as you show off your clothes, as you, you show off your expensive wedding dress that, and this may sound like a bitter musician speaking, your expensive wed- wedding dress that cost three times what you were willing to pay for the musicians. <laughs> I'm sure it was always that case. Uh, Galliard is a much more jumpy and upbeat dance. Um, often that plays around with uh, meter. As Anyway, you, you, if you want a further description, I think it's a longer one in the last episode. On this project, I'll be playing uh, two sets of music dedicated to the Earl of Salisbury. And I was wondering if you could speak more about his patronage of oh, uh, these composers. Yeah. Well, both in his political life and in his artistic life, his patronage, he's, there's no greater patron than uh, the Earl of Salisbury, who was born Robert Cecil. He was born in 1563, and he was the younger son of William Cecil, Lord Burghley, who was um, Queen Elizabeth's uh, leading counsellor or the prime minister didn't exist. It would be anachronistic to say he was the prime minister, but that's maybe the best way to think of it. Um, Robert Cecil was thought to be much more suited to being an administrator and politician than his older brother, who was going to inherit Lord Burghley. Even uh, his father thought that the eldest son was suitable only for running a tennis court. Anyway, uh, Robert uh, was made a a privy councillor. He was an MP and a privy councillor by 1591, and he was knighted. Uh, Privy council is like the cabinet um, in those days. And as his father's health declined, he took on more and more responsibilities. And uh, uh, when his father died in 1598, he became Lord Privy Seal and Secretary of State and Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, all these Offices that accrue to being the leading councillor. And in this, he sort of becomes a, a contest for uh, the Queen's patronage and uh, influence at court with the famous Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex. And they could be not uh, less alike in terms of character. Uh, listeners will uh, remember if you listen to our Philip Sidney series. There's a description of the Battle of Zutphen when uh, the, uh, the Earl of Essex uh, is f- riding heroically into kill Spaniards at the Battle of Zutphen, and uh, was flashy, looked good on a horse, and uh, he was in contest, as I say, with uh, Cecil for uh, the Queen's approval. On her accession day uh, celebrations in 1595, Essex and Bacon, Francis Bacon, who was his uh, chief advisor, uh, wrote an entertainment where a soldier and a statesman and a hermit discuss how to best serve the queen. And the, the statesman is clearly supposed to be Cecil and is sort of um, Cecil or his father and uh, sort of is like, oh, uh, these politicians, they're sneaky and you they'll abandon you immediately. And then it turns out in the end that the lover is the best way to serve the queen. And that entertainment had a couple of songs by Dowland in it. So these sort of, um, the patronage from those sort of spills out into the, the arts, right? And who's going to get what? Essex rebelled, as many may know, in 1601. And that was really aimed at Robert Cecil because uh, Essex said he was going to liberate the Queen from her bad advisers. One of the 
items of bad advice was that the um, the princess, the Infanta Isabella of Spain, Cecil was sort of pushing her to be the successor to Elizabeth. Mm. Um, and that isn't as ridiculous as it sounds. Uh, she was descended from um, the Lancaster branch. The Cecils had always seen France as more of a threat than Spain. Um, because England's business, the cloth trade, all went through Antwerp in the Spanish Netherlands. And so it may have been that, that it was a better economic deal, um, but also just to oppose Essex just because. Essex was in favour of James VI of Scotland uh, being a successor. But so after the downfall of Essex, after his rebellion, Cecil went all in on James VI and he was sending secret letters and organizing a rider to zip up there to hop on his horse as soon as uh, uh, Elizabeth died for smooth succession. And so that's why he was uh, made Baron Cecil just months after James's accession, then got promoted. So a few years later, he's the Earl of Salisbury. Uh, he was made Earl of Salisbury in 1605 and became very rich as the Lord Treasurer. Oh, he was also the spy master, I should say. And so he was uh, very involved, one of the chief discoverers of the gunpowder plot. It's been suggested that he organized the plot from the start and it was all entrapment, which is probably not true, or that he knew well in advance and let the plot run out to see who would be caught. And also for the drama of finding it the night before Parliament was supposed to set. Right. So it has this dramatic flair and then, you know, they can go upstairs and say, oh, look, James the first is under the same threat as you. You should vote to give him a lot of money. So he also the last one of the last things he did was um, uh, organizing the marriage of uh, James's daughter, Princess Elizabeth Stuart, to Frederick. And that was kind of his policy of making England uh, the leader of a Protestant League of Nations in the same way that Spain was the leader of the Catholic nations. Anne, who was a princess of Denmark, Queen Anne uh, thought that her daughter should have married somebody who was a king at least. So that was one of his last things. This couple that this book, Parthenia, is dedicated to were, were organizing their marriage. And he died a couple of months before Frederick turned up for the wedding. Concerning his position as Lord Treasurer, um, a lot of his interactions with the musicians also came through that position since whenever mm -hmm. they needed money for their salaries or for grants, they would write specifically to petition mm -hmm. him for, for money. And he became very rich, but you needed to be rich to be magnificent in those days. And this patronage of his that he, had, that he was able to hand out... That's a way of attracting good people to you by having the most fabulous musical establishment and having the most fabulous buildings. What you were mentioning before of his magnificence and power that he cultivated, there are still some brick and mortar examples mm -hmm. around. Uh, well, his um, London residence uh, called Salisbury House uh, was on the Strand in the waterfront. Uh, that was t built right at the beginning of the 1600s and was torn down in the uh, 1690s. Uh, from his father, he in inherited a country home called, uh, it looks like Theobald's, it's uh, Tybald's, it's usually pronounced. 
and this was a place where there were great entertainments. Um, there's a famous one. I'm going to read a bit of the, of the description of it uh, because it's, well, not only because it's hilarious. There was an entertainment where the King of Denmark came to visit and stayed at Tybalt's. And a letter from a man called Sir John Harrington to a friend said, um, My good friend, in compliance with your asking, now shall you accept my poor account of rich doings. I came here a day or two before the Danish king came, and from the day he did come until this hour, I have been well nigh overwhelmed with carousal and sports of all kind. I think the Dane hath strangely wrought on our good English nobles, for those whom I could never get to taste good liquor now follow the fashion and wallow in beastly delights. The ladies abandon their sobriety and are seen to roll about in intoxication. In good sooth, the Parliament did kindly to provide his majesty so seasonably with money, for there have been no lack of good living, shows, sights, and banquetings from morn to eve. So remember, this is 1606, the year after, shortly after, the gunpowder plot. Mm -hmm. So that's what that's talking Parliament did kindly to provide his majesty so seasonably with money. He goes on. One day, a great feast was held. And after dinner, the representation of Solomon, his temple, and the coming of the Queen of Sheba was made. Or, as I may better say, was meant to have been made before their majesties, by device of the Earl of Salisbury and others. But alas, as all earthly things do fail to poor mortals in enjoyment, so did prove our presentment hereof. The lady who did play the queen's part did carry most precious gifts to both their majesties, but forgetting the steps arising to the canopy, overset her caskets into his Danish majesty's lap, and fell as his feet, though I rather think it was in his face. Much hurry and confusion, cloth and napkins were at hand to make all clean. His majesty then got up and would dance with the queen of Sheba, but he fell down and humbled himself before her and was carried to an inner chamber and laid on a bed of state, which was not a little defiled with the presence of the queen, which had been bestowed upon his garments, such as wine, cream, jelly, beverage, cake, spice, and other good matters. The entertainment and show went forward, and most of the presenters went backward or fell down. Wine did so occupy their upper chambers. Now did appear rich in dress, hope, faith, and charity. Hope did essay to speak, but wine rendered her endeavors so feeble that she withdrew, and hoped the king would excuse her brevity. Faith was then alone, for I am certain she was not joined with good works, and left the court in a staggering condition. Charity came to the king's freet and seemed to cover the multitude of sins of her sisters who had committed. In some sort she made obeisance and brought gifts, but said she would return home again, as there was no gift which heaven had not already given his majesty. She then returned to hope and faith, who were both sick and spewing in the lower hall. All right, so it sounds like quite a good party. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but so, so we can learn also from this that Cecil... It said he was involved in the device, in the devising of this. So in the same way that uh, Francis Bacon and the Earl of Essex sort of worked together to make this entertainment, this sort of little mask, mm -hmm. um, that's how the patrons are working in those days, right? They're like saying, I want this over here, and da -da -da, or they may have been helping to write. 
they involve music and dancing. The, the uh, drunk uh, Danish king wanted to dance with the Queen of Sheba. And they involve women performers as mm-hmm. faith, hope and charity. So that was the big party at Tybalt's. Um, uh, James liked that house and didn't like his own Hatfield house that he had inherited from Elizabeth. And so they traded uh, and, and Cecil uh, tore down the old house and put up uh, what they call a prodigy house, one of these great Italianate things with classical stylings called Hatfield House. And the designers on that, uh, the team of designers included Inigo Jones, who was famous for court masks, the design of those. Uh, in fact, he engaged uh, Ben Johnson and Inigo Jones, the mask team, uh, to write entertainments for Tybalt's, uh, known to have music in, uh, rare and choice music, according to Ben Johnson. Uh, a lot of the stu- old stuff from Elizabeth's old Hatfield house ended up in the new Hatfield house, where mm-hmm. the Salisbury's still live. Um, the famous rainbow portrait of Queen Elizabeth is in there. Uh, he also uh, had um, a place called the New Exchange uh, built in London, which was kind of, uh, to call it a shopping mall, I think sells it a bit short. <laughs> and there were pl- also pleasant speeches, gifts, and in- ingenious devices devised by Ben Johnson for that, uh, with songs as well. Uh, there may have been some veiled criticism by in some of Johnson's plays, uh, Volpone has a rich con man who gets richer when there's all these people who want to um, be his heir, this rich con man, and they keep bringing him gifts in the hopes, and he just keeps getting richer and richer. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that might be aimed at uh, Cecil. Uh, Sejanus, his fall, um, may have been a, a veiled a criticism. Uh, Sejanus was uh, the evil power behind the throne. Uh, for the emperor, Roman emperor Tiberius, Catiline, his conspiracy. These were all thought to be criticisms of uh, of Cecil as well from what was one, you know, somebody he was otherwise giving his patronage to. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the rainbow portrait of Elizabeth. Did his patronage also extend to paintings also, not oh, just Oh, yeah. He, um, Henry Peacham wrote a sort of a how to be a good courtier book but one of his other books is a treatise on drawing and painting and calls him a principal patron of this art especially in his chapel at Hatfield um, the most famous painting of uh, the Earl of Salisbury is by uh, the John de Critz a uh, Flemond who uh, decorated Salisbury House uh, he was the sergeant painter to the king and there's also well-known paintings of King James and Queen Anne and Prince Henry. In fact, Prince, mm. Prince Henry, the Prince of Wales, who would have been Henry the Ninth mm-hmm. had he not died very young, uh, were said of, to have similar tastes in art. And uh, they were said by the Venetian ambassador to be almost always together. Oh. Uh, so it was like he was training mm-hmm. the young uh, Prince of Wales up. It was a huge con- uh, art collection. It is Hatfield and Salisbury houses, um, including uh, several other pictures of Elizabeth and a lot of portraits of foreign kings and queens. So maybe he wanted to have some idea of who he was dealing with in matters of foreign right. policy. And he was also, now this is hard to represent in a recording like this, but he was also had amazing gardens built that had the latest imported flowers and things like this. In all of the arts, he was... Um, very uh, great patron. 
Um, so he wasn't just a supporter of musicians and composers who were outside of his household, but he also employed mm-hmm. his own personal musicians. Yes, he had quite a he had a very big uh, musical retinue for somebody who wasn't the king. Uh, from the time he was a privy councillor to when he died, he had uh, up to 20 musicians who were working part-time. And full-time in his household, he had uh, at least two boys and up to five men working in his household. So those boys would probably be singing in his chapels. He had chapels mm-hmm. at his residences. And um, also Thomas Morley, his uh, first book of ballads to five voices is... Uh, dedicated to him it, it's again it's very italianate you can see uh, uh cecil's taste is very italianate mm-hmm. um it has that book has now is the month of maying a very famous madrigal if you know one english madrigal that's probably uh the one you know there's also a book of robert jones first set of madrigals for uh, vials or voices probably his most famous uh household musician was Nicholas Lanier who was uh, just a teenager when he started working for the Earl of Salisbury and who went later went on to be the first master of the king's music uh, Salisbury's son Lord Cranbourne had viol lessons viol de gamba probably viol lessons from uh, Lanier at home uh, when uh, he went to Cambridge La- uh, Lanier went with him uh, also, there's a letter from uh, Lord Cranbourne saying, Dad, on this trip to Venice that I'm taking, can I take Lanier along to keep me up with my vial? So that's important because that patronage, Lanier went and got musical intelligence from this trip mm-hmm. and came back and was writing uh, chaconas and things like this. Um, the son also studied the lute and keyboard and had a book of cittern music, a little wire-strung mm-hmm. instrument, dedicated to him which has two uh, it starts with um, the the lord treasurer his pavan and the galliard to the pavan before so there's a couple pieces dedicated to the father in this book entirely dedicated to his son there's other musicians uh, robert hales one time when um, uh, cecil was in trouble with the queen he had some of his own poetry sung to queen elizabeth by robert hales who was said to be her favorite singer, in whose voice she took some pleasure. Other Lanier brothers who both played flute, John and Innocent Lanier. Uh, John Caprario is a very big uh, viola de gamba consort composer, forward-looking musician. His real name was John Cooper, Mm. right? But he's such an Italian, affecting Italianisms so much that he changed his name to Caprario, sounded more Italian. More marketable. Uh, yeah, more. <laughs> he had an Irish harpist, uh, a Cormac McDermott. This is interesting because much of Cecil's time was spent dealing with rebellions in Ireland and the plantation of Scots and English uh, Protestants in what's now Northern Ireland. And in fact, um, Cormac McDermott, the harp player, traveled to Bath, where uh, Cecil went to take the waters uh, mm-hmm. in his final sickness. These musicians were paid very well as well for non-court musicians. They were making £20 a year. A court job was £40 a year. So they didn't entertain, as I say, they perform in his um, in his chapels, but also in his chambers at Whitehall and his homes. Several of them were lute players, Caprario, Lanier, Hales, all lute players as well. I'm most excited when it comes to lute players. I'm most excited about 
his connection with John Dowland, the most famous composer for that instrument and songwriter as well. Uh, Dowland had had a half-hearted conversion to Catholicism when he was in France working for the English ambassador to there as his first job. And he always claimed that this worked against him. Uh, when he was applying for a job at Elizabeth's court. But we know that's nonsense, right? Yes, because Bird was Catholic all the way yeah, through full his on. He was <laughs> job not half-hearted. He had, and he had the best, he had the chapel royal, so that's nonsense. Uh, so it was probably just because Dowland was, appears to have been a little undependable. Oh. Um, so after he couldn't get a job at court, he went on a sort of a grand tour of Europe. He was working as a visiting musicians at various courts through, throughout Germany and then into Italy. And so from Nuremberg, after he re- leaves Florence, uh, there's a letter from Nuremberg uh, dated the 10th of November 1595 to the Right Honourable Sir Robert Cecil Knight, one of the Queen's Majesty's most honourable privy councillors. Uh, 15 years, he explains his conversion, 15 years since I was uh, in France servant to Sir Henry Cobham, who was ambassador for the Queen's Majesty, and lay in Paris, where I fell acquainted with, and he lists a bunch of priests, uh, these men thrust idle toys into my head of religion, saying that the papists was the truth, and ours in England all false, and I being young, their fair words overreached me, and I believed with them. So he had this conversion. Then he refers to the probably to the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre of Protestants and how that mm. puts him off, and complains again uh, about how he didn't get a job because of his conversion. So then he sets off on his tour, and he says, The Duke of Brunswick, he used me kindly and gave me a rich chain of gold, 23 pounds in money, uh, with velvet and satin and gold lace to make me apparel with the promise that if I would serve him, he would give me as much as any prince in the world. From thence, I went to the landgrave of Hessen, who gave me the greatest welcome that might be for one of my quality, who sent a ring into England to my wife, valued at 20 pounds sterling, and gave me a great standing cup with a cover of gilt, full of dollars, with many great offers of my service. From thence, I came. Uh, I had a great desire to see Italy and came to Venice and from thence to Florence, where I performed before the Duke and got great favors. Right then, the Florentine Camerata ah, yes. is inventing Baroque music, right? Yes, so, so Yeah, so yeah. he's right there. In Florence, he fell in with an English expatriate priest and a friar, and he said, this friar, Bailey told me that he had received letters from Rome to hasten me forward, to rush to Rome, and told me that my discontentment was known at Rome, and that I should have a large pension of the Pope, and that His Holiness and all the cardinals would make wonderful much of me. Uh, and he, but then he protests, then Dowland protests his loyalty and gives titbits about English Catholics. So it seems to me that he's offering to take that job He's saying, look how everybody rewards me at these courts. I can get right in there. The Pope wants to hire me. Do you hear some tidbits about English Catholics abroad that I've already got? Do you want me to take this job? That's what I imagine anyway. Uh, we know Nicholas Lanier was paid out of the Secret Service account mm-hmm. and Alfonso Ferbosco the Elder and other people were paid out of the secret... Other musicians were paid out of the Secret Service account which may have just been a way of giving them an extra few bucks here and there, but it, there certainly seems to be some spying going on, particularly with these players 
of quiet instruments like right, the lute. Yes, yeah. who are allowed into very intimate the settings. The very, very intimate home. settings, right? It's like the most secret places in the bed chamber, not just in the privy chamber, mm-hmm. but in the most secret place. Uh, Dowland does a translation uh, from Latin, a music textbook called Micrologus from 1517, whereas sort of the theoretical uh, things that medieval music has of geometry proportion, but it also has practical musical instruction, which is new for 1517. Mm -hmm. And I think this is how Dowland particularly sees this. Dowland says in the dedication to uh, the Earl of Salisbury, such is your divine disposition that you both excellently understand and royally entertain the exercise of music. So that's his association with John Dowland, the most important lute player. So that's a lot um, from a, I guess, a lute player's perspective. And also you mentioned uh, viol players and flute players, Um, but I'm interested in keyboard uh, Uh, performers. Well, there were two, he he employed uh, two keyboard players in his household, a Thomas Warwick and a William Frost this uh, William Frost asked Cecil to recommend him, William Frost, for the post of virginal teacher to Princess Elizabeth, uh, which went to John Bull. Well, John uh, Bull was, he yeah, got his doctoral yeah, degree, so he's yeah, so Dr. He's, John yeah, Bull. Yeah, Dr. John Bull. <laughs> Uh, Cecil's daughter, uh, Lady Frances, played the virginals and would have taken lessons from one of these uh, keyboardists. He had uh, up to four organs, probably one in each of his private chapels. An inventory of the Salisbury House residence said that he had one great harpsichord virginal. Now, we were talking last time about the different terminology and how all plucked keyboard instruments were called virginals in yes. England. But this specifically says harpsichord not harpsichord. Um, so I suspect this is one of the big triangular ones, right? Yes. That sounds like that. Mm-hmm. With keys of mother of pearl and a case of wood painted with two pillar trestles. So it's got a stand. It's got fancy mother of pearl keys. It's got the whole thing. And he also had one little pair of virginals covered with a crimson cloth of gold. So that's at his London place. You'd imagine he'd have, in addition to the organ more at his place in the country. Uh, Other instruments uh, he had, he owned an Irish harp, a wire-strung harp, Mm -hmm. viols, which could also be members of the violin family, the old Gamba family and violin family. The word viol was used interchangeably Mm -hmm. in those days. And he had a bass violin and he had several lutes. In fact, the viols, as I say, he employed a viol composer. It's an instrument called the lira viol, uh, which is usually just a smaller bass viol that you can play fast and play a lot of chords on. And one of his, again, one of person for whom he was a patron, gave him a viol which had additional wire strings, sympathetic strings, that sort of run under the fingerboard that you tune to whatever piece you're in and they sort of act as a like a little reverb mm-hmm. unit that you can play that you carry around for this by yourself these uh, this later became the viola de more had the same sort of thing mm-hmm. and that's uh, Bach and Vivaldi both uh, write music for that Tobias Holm uh, dedicated the Earl of Salisbury's delight or favorite for lyra and bass files so that Tobias Holm claims is his favorite piece 
uh, around his, speaking of fabulous, weird instruments that he had, as well as the, this lyrophile with the sympathetic strings, he also had around his death an instrument called a claviorganum, which is a sort of hybrid virginal organ instrument. We were talking last time about the instrument with two detachable keyboards, oh, yes. via, right? Yes. So that these uh, they're really being innovative with the building of instruments. The as I say, the um, he died a couple of months before Frederick turned up for the royal wedding. So uh, in the dedication, what did it say? Uh, the betrothed couple. So it seems likely that these galliards and pavins for um, the Earl of Salisbury that are in Parthenia are uh, in memoriam pieces. Because yes. it was, if uh, this book is, as you say, printed for the uh, wedding celebrations, uh, he's been dead just before that. So they might be in memoriams for mm-hmm. him. Uh, maybe they were commissioned by his family as well, because a lot of people badmouthed him after he died. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> so they wanted something nicer to remember him by. Yes. Thank you. 